Dr. Dale on Quail, bringing you the latest news and views about all things quail in Texas. Brought to you by the Rolling Plains Quail Research Foundation, preserving the wild quail hunting heritage of Texas for this and future generations. Major support for this podcast comes from Gordian Sons Outfitters. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to this month's episode of Dr. Dale on Quail. I'm Gary Joyner with the Texas Farm Bureau. When it comes to farm and ranch real estate, it's a seller's market right now. What does that mean for quail habitat and for other recreational properties? Dr. Dale has the perfect guest to explore those topics. He's Sam Middleton of Lubbock ranch land broker and appraiser and owner of Charles S. Middleton and Son. Let's go to Dr. Dale now with his special guest. Well, good morning, Gary, and it's good to be with you all as always. Uh, glad to see October finally get here with a little bit cooler temperatures. And we're just about a couple of weeks away from the 2022 quail season opening day. It, it's going to be a pretty slow season for most of us in West Texas. A little better in the Panhandle, a little better in far west Texas, west of the Trans-Pecos, and it's going to be pretty darn good for most of South Texas. So if you got any coupons to clip to go down to South Texas, I would encourage you to go south, young man. And we're looking forward to a little bit rainier time up here in the west Texas and bringing our quail populations back as soon as possible. There's a fellow named Aldo Leopold who is no stranger to this group, and one of his quotes said that to those devoid of imagination, a blank spot on a map is a useless waste, but to others, the most valuable part. And if you studied that map of the lights at the United States, you'd be able to pick out uh, Houston, uh, I-35 corridor, Fort Worth, Dallas, but you won't be able to pick out Roby, Texas or Hebronville. And so we know those areas are the best quail places and typically they're dark because there is not that much human habitation. And so we're always, uh, you know, you wonder why they're dark. And most of those because they're in fairly large land holdings and uh, habitat has not been highly fragmented like it has points further east. But I want you to dream with me here just a minute. I want you to pretend that we just last night we got news we won the lotto and we got $100 million. And where would you go with that money? Well, the stock market's pretty shaky right now. Would you put it into land? And a lot of people are doing that. And so I want to ask you, where would you buy a nice quail ranch? What part of the state would you be looking at? And our guest today has probably sold more quaily properties in Texas, especially in West Texas, than anybody else. And that would be Sam Middleton. Sam is with Charles S. Middleton and Sons. Uh, up in Lubbock, and he's my special guest today. So, Sam, welcome aboard. We're proud to have you here today. Thanks, Dale. And I want to ask you, Sam, if you will, just give us your elevator speech. Give us your bona fides about uh, where you were raised and how you, how you got in this business and how long, those kind of things. Well, I've been in it a long time. I'm 74 years old now, and I'm trying to slow down. Uh, my wife won't let me. But uh, I was born in Lubbock, been here all my life. My grandfather came to Lubbock before 1900 and uh, got into the uh, ranch real estate business early on, uh, cattle business, and my dad joined him. We've been in business for over 100 years, and uh, uh, I started with my dad in the early 70s, uh, following him around opening gates for him and I became very interested in this business and I, I also became interested in the appraisal business which has been a great leader for for our ranch sales over the years and I'm a licensed broker in five states and uh, I'm an accredited rural appraiser and a state certified appraiser. Uh, most of our appraisal work is a state work and it it's been a, a great benefit to our company because we would uh, will appraise these ranches for estate taxes and a few years later many times the the next generation calls us to sell the, the property for them and so uh, I noticed about uh, 30 years ago that recreation was becoming a big factor in the market 
and uh, and so nowadays most of the ranches we sell uh, the the focus of the market seems to be recreation uh, quail deer fishing hunting uh, it's uh, it's all all recreation driven well I've of course, if you read the Livestock Weekly, like many of us do, the, the last three or four pages are filled with uh, ads by various uh, real estate uh, people and so forth. And I know you're, you're a prominent part therein, but uh, it seems like over the last, again, 25, 30 years, there's been a real proliferation of people in your business. And uh, I would think that having a hundred year history of doing it would kind of give you the upper leg on a, a lot of your uh, competition. Well, I've been very fortunate. Uh, my grandfather and father left me with quite a legacy and, uh, and we've, we've had a good business. We've sold some, some big properties over the years, but I've noticed like, what you're saying about the, the ranch ads every time the ranch market gets really good and things start going great well people come out of the woodwork that are all all of a sudden they're in the ranch real estate business and then if we have a recession a lot of those folks go away and uh, i've been fortunate to withstand a couple of recessions over the years and uh, we've remained in business and and uh, I've, I've had a good run. Well, we wish you the best continued success there. And I would think the momentum that you've gained over the years is going to help keep your company going pretty good if you don't run out of property to list. I want to go back, <laughs> Sam, you mentioned uh, again, the ranch appraisal business, and, and I'm pretty naive about this, so bear with me. But how does ranch appraisal fit in with listing that uh, you, you said it was a real asset for you to to have that appraisal business, and then that basically uh, led you into uh, first in line, I guess, to list that property later on. So if you're looking at, let's say that I come to you and I've got a 10,000 acre property in Kent County, for example, yes, sir. As, as an, when, when would you come in and do a ranch appraisal and what would you be looking at to do that? Well, if you're, you know, say you're a non-resident owner, say you live in Houston and, and you own that ranch in, in uh, Kent County, Jayton area, or uh, you inherit that ranch and you've decided you, you want to think about selling it and you call me, first thing I do, I may not do a formal appraisal on the property, but I would do what I would call a market analysis where I would... Uh, I would gather up all of the sales in say a 50 mile radius of that property and meet with you and discuss the sales and go look at, at your ranch. And what I always tell you is that I'll come look at no obligation and we'll discuss the sales and I'll tell you what I think I can do. And, uh, if, uh, if we have a meeting of the minds, I'll list the ranch and try to sell it for you. If you're not ready, well, we just go down the road. Or if you think I'm not giving you an accurate number on, on what the ranch might be worth, well, you don't owe me a dime. Now, uh, in some cases, you may want a, a detailed appraisal report, and we have to charge for that. And, uh, and that'll have a lot of information in it, much more than just the market analysis. But uh, you know, we, we'll do anything to try to get the ranch. So we'll, we'll do the market analysis or the complete appraisal report. But, uh, uh, most of our appraisals are situations where the, the family calls us and grandpa died. And so they need an appraisal for estate tax purposes. And that's when we form a relationship with the family because we're out there looking at the ranch, making a detailed appraisal report, many times meeting with the CPA or the, the attorneys for the estate planning. And at times we even go before the IRS to defend our values. So we form a relationship with the family at that time. And then we also do a lot of work for estate planning where we create uh, suggestions on how to uh, uh, 
uh, eliminate the estate tax or lower the estate tax or pass that property down to the next generation without paying estate tax. And there's there's things you can do like create uh, family limited partnerships or undivided ownership interest in the ranch to save the family a lot of estate taxes. And so by doing all that, we form a relationship with the family. And then many times, 10 years later, the family calls and say, well, it's time to sell the ranch. And they, they a lot of times they'll think of us as the people to go to. Well, I know that's um, probably been a big part of your business over the last 30 years. And, and as a wildlife guy, we always lament those bigger properties being cut up. And I understand the sociology and the politics of that, because again, if four kids are the heirs, uh, maybe one of them's got interest in the ranch and the other three want their money. So it winds up either being bought out by that one on the ranch or more typically subdivided and sold off kind of thing. So uh, again, a little, uh, that's, that's kind of sad, but that's, that's life, I guess. It happens all the time. Yeah. And, uh, and many times uh, the next generation doesn't get along and they've all got different interests. And like you say, there may be one of the heirs that lives on the ranch. He wants to keep it together. And there's two or three that live in Dallas or Houston that don't have the sentimental attachment that the one that was raised and stayed on the ranch has. And, and those heirs, call they, they see well we've got a 15 million dollar ranch property here that's not making us any money and we both know that these ranches don't throw off a lot of income you make your money in the ranch through long-term investment they they appreciate in value and you know we've got a lot of data to support the long-term advantage of ownership on how it goes up in value but a lot of these next generation, they just want to cash out and take the money and do something else. And it happens all the time. Yeah. I remember when I worked for Oklahoma State University, I was at a uh, symposium and uh, one of the professors basically said that the your average Oklahoma farmer lives poor and dies rich. He lives poor because that farmer ranch is probably generating a one or two percent return on investment, right. and he dies rich because of the appreciation in the land value. And certainly, we've seen a lot of that over the last twenty-five years. So, so true. So true. I used to go to, uh, and I'm sure I met you there several times, Sam, at the real estate center, that land, uh, rural lands market, or yeah. whatever we have down in San Antonio, and the land called, uh, right. yeah. rural trend the trends in rural land prices. I don't have those at my fingers, but could you give an approximation, say over the last 10 years, are we talking about 15% kind of increases in, uh, in prices or, or, or do you have a feel for that at your fingertips? Well, yeah, I'm, I'm on that committee that we track those land values that started back in the mid 1960s. And every year they compile all of the sales that we can for the state of Texas, rural properties and track appreciation. And this, this is included times in the eighties when we had that huge recession and actually land values were cut in half at that point. And then we've had the recession of 2007 through about 2010. And uh, we've had we had another recession in the early 2000s, uh, uh, late 90s, early 2000s. But in all those other recessions, ranches, farms, the the volume of sales slowed down dramatically. Uh, but you can't really say that land depreciated. It might have gone down a little bit, but basically what it did, it just quit selling. Uh, but in the 80s, it went down. It, it was cut cut in half. But other recessions we've had, the sales just slowed down. But since the 1960s, we've tracked we've tracked that increase, and land has increased approximately six percent per year since the 1960s. 
Now, in 2021, we had the largest increase ever in the state of Texas. And it started out, you know, with COVID and everybody was scared to death and the phone quit ringing and I had eight ranches in contract in March of 2020. And, uh, and several of those sales were 1031 exchanges. Those people went ahead and closed uh, because of the tax implications. But I had, uh, I had one of those sales, the guy, we were circulating the closing documents to close the sale in two days. His attorney sent a letter and said, we demand the return of our escrow deposit. They had 250,000 in escrow. And, uh, I called my seller and I said, this guy wants to back out. And he said, well, what can we do? And I said, well, legally, that's your money because uh, we, uh, uh, th there were no contingencies. All the due diligence had passed and it was time to close the sale. And I said, legally, that's your money. And, and he said, well, what do you suggest? And I said, let me call him and try to delay the closing for 90 days. Tim will just delay it. And by then, maybe things will turn around. And he said, no, the, the buyer said, no, I want my money back right now. So anyway, we, the seller said, tell him I'll take 25000 to pay my attorney fees and give him the rest of it. And, uh, and we did that, started over on marketing the ranch. And for about 30 to 45 days, nobody wanted to do anything. Then this market started heating up and... In six months, we resold that ranch for more money than, than he had it bought for. And this market just went crazy. And last year, 2021, was the craziest market ever. The volume was the largest ever. The increase was the largest ever. And it uh, increased about over 20% last year. And some areas like the Metroplex and the Hill Country, those areas increased over 30% last year. It just went crazy. And I think a lot of that was because of COVID that the people wanted to be out away from populated areas and be out where they could breathe fresh air. And it just, the market just went through the roof. Do you see that? continuing sam slowing uh stopping where, where do you think it's going to be here over the next 18 months two years well right now it's still a seller's market there's there's more demand than than properties for for sale and we've been fighting to get listings and and it's been tough but the scary part right now with the fed increasing these these interest rates I talked to a capital farm credit guy about four days ago, and he said with this last interest rate, he said long-term financing right now in the farm and ranch market is approximately 10%, and that is going to shut it down. And even short-term financing is 8% uh, variable type. Uh, so what I'm saying is that where we've been blessed with cheap interest rates for the last 10 years or so, and you could borrow money on a variable rate at uh, around three to three and a half percent. And even fixed rates were four or five percent. Now then with these rates jumping to eight on variable and 10 on fixed, it is going to shut this thing down, I'm afraid. I don't know how long that's going to last. Now, we still have people doing 1031 exchanges, and we have people taking uh, money out of the stock market that can come in and buy these ranches for cash. But with these rates going up where they are right now, it's going to slow this thing down for sure, no question. About, uh, I don't know, 25 years or so ago, I gathered up about 20 of my colleagues here at San Angelo. We met down at the Sonora Research Station. And my question to them, and this is animal scientists, range managers, wildlife people, 
about talking about land uses and uh, priorities in land uses over the coming years. And my question to them was, has the wildlife tail begun to wag the livestock dog? In other words, <laughs> were people buying ranches like historically for livestock? Uh, but it seemed like at that time, again, that was kind of the movement was already afoot. It was swinging pretty hard at that point in time, at least in the hill country, more towards wildlife recreation. And you mentioned that as being a driving force a while ago. I remember, I guess the first time I met you, uh, we, we had our first quail masters class in uh, 2005. And we were down uh, in Scurry County at one of our meetings. And I asked you to come down and talk about about the same topic we're talking about today. And I'll never forget, never forget your opening sentence. And I shall quote, we don't sell ranches to ranchers anymore, end quote. Is that still the case today? Or is some of that stuff kind of uh, moderated over the last 10 years or so? No, for the most part, it's, it's, uh, it's recreation buyers and people parking money and land as an investment. We still do a few deals with ranchers, but about the only time we sell a ranch to ranchers is when he has sold his ranch to somebody and he's making a 1031 exchange, or if it's a rancher that's been blessed with some oil money or uh, a water sale or, or uh, mineral sales or things like that. You know, there's a lot of things out there in the market today that generate income for ranches in certain areas like, you know, wind farm, solar farm and, and royalty and water and, and gravel, and things like that, where a, where a rancher comes into a pretty big bonus for them, that part of the market, then he'll take that money and buy another ranch. But for the most part, our uh, ranch sales are are recreation driven. Our people parking money uh, for a long term investment. Sam, you mentioned uh, a couple of times ten thirty one exchange for our listeners that that are like me and pretty naive about a lot of this. Can you briefly describe what you're talking about there? Okay, that's where say that uh, you bought a ranch thirty years ago, or you inherited a ranch, and you have a low basis in that ranch of say $200 an acre and you're able to sell that ranch for $1,500 per acre, uh, the gain, the taxable gain is, uh, is between that $200 basis and the $1,500 that you sell it for. So you've got a $1,300 appreciation that's uh, taxable at about 20%, and uh, which is still the cheapest tax we've got. But uh, uh, so many people, they're so paranoid about paying any taxes to the government, they'll do a 1031 exchange, which means when you sell that property, you close that sale, you cannot take constructive receipt of that money. You have to have an intermediary to hold that money for you, and you have 45 days to identify potential exchange properties. And you identify these exchange properties with the intermediary, and you have 180 days to actually close the sale. And the intermediary comes in and funds that sale for you. And that way, you have actually made an exchange rather than an outright sale. So you're your tax liability is moved into the next property. The one thing that so many people uh, think in, in my business, I, I see this that they they don't they don't think about the depreciation that they can set up in the new property. Uh, I encourage people to consider going ahead and paying that tax the capital gains tax, which is the lowest tax we've got, buy the new property outright, and then they set up a new depreciation schedule. Most of our ranches, you can set up, say say you buy a $10 million ranch, most of our ranches, you can set up three to $5 million of that purchase in depreciable assets. 
and uh, if you do a 1031 exchange, you don't have you you uh, if you've uh, already depreciated all the assets on the ranch you've sold, you have to move that into your new purchase, so you don't have the benefit of depreciation. So I think you've got to weigh the the long-term benefits of depreciation versus that capital gains tax savings. But everybody is so focused on not paying that capital gains tax, I don't think they really study the benefit of, uh, of the depreciable assets on the new purchase. Well, I'm sure spending time with their CPA and their tax planners, uh, especially if you, it's you got to look at all of it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, Sam, I'm going to list off a couple of the ranches that I know you've uh, sold over over the last um, four or five years, and man, it's it's the big ones, uh, four sixes, the Matador, uh, that Swenson flat top, most recently part of uh, Boone Pickens' Mesa Vista Ranch. And I've probably left a few others out. Are there others on your trophy wall right now that you'd like? To be able <laughs> well, to I've I've had a good run, and we're closing the rest of, of the Boone Pickens Ranch here in about two weeks. We we've closed about half of it, and we're closing the rest of it in a couple of weeks. But no, I've been very fortunate to handle some some big ranch properties over the years. You know where you and I first worked together, Dale, on that. Canadian River Ranch, 71,000 acres up there. I've sold that ranch three times wow. over the years. So so I've, I've had very good fortune and uh, I've had a lot of luck and uh, and I've had a lot of repeat business, which is, has been a key to what success I've had is repeat business. Yeah. Uh, again, uh, you, you get a lot of accolades, and I'm sure I'm sure you've earned those, uh, justify those. Uh, yeah, you mentioned that ranch that where I worked with you up there West Amarillo on the Canadian River, and this was I don't remember ninety five two thousand somewhere along that time frame. And uh, the potential buyer uh, was looking at it and had asked me he was wanting it for quail, and he said, "How many? What's wanted to do basically a quail appraisal, if you will." And so I met uh, with Sam, and uh, there were a total of six of us, and we broke into three groups, two-man groups, and we did whistle counts. This was in May, as I recall. We did whistle counts across 71,000 acres over three days. And I had a chance to spend a good bit of time with Sam. And, uh, again, on the 71,000-acre property, there are a lot of two-track roads, and a lot of those two-track roads hadn't been traveled down very much, and this was really before you had GPS on your iPad. And I mentioned, I commented to uh, Sam, I said, man, I am impressed about how well you know all these little bitty trails that go through this ranch. And his reply was, and I'll quote, you don't know how many times I've sold this ranch, in quotes. <laughs> so, so again, uh, you put the, put the time in, no doubt about that. Um, Sam, as we look at these, some of those ranches we listed a while ago, uh, again, is there a common, we mentioned wildlife or, or recreation as being a big part of that. Um, are some of those people, again, looking at it as an, an investment of where to park money? Is that one of the big motives right now? Oh, yeah. And, uh, you know, and again, recreation and just, they they just feel like these things are, are a good place to park money long term. And of course, Anytime you have a ranch with some history behind it, like the Matadors or Four Sixes or the Swinsons, uh, the Wagner, the, we sold the Wagner in 2016. It's 535,000 acres. It was the largest uh, contiguous ranch under fence in the United States. And so anytime you have a ranch with that kind of history, you you have an opportunity to bring in some some big interested parties. I know the Wagner, I showed it a little over 50 times before we sold it. And one of the in, interesting points in that ranch, I remember I showed it to, I believe 16 different groups, um, uh, 
uh, out of the United States, and I'm talking about South America, Europe, the Middle East, Japan, Korea, uh, South Korea, uh, just all over the world. And there was only one group of those 16 groups that knew anything about agriculture. And it was a family from Argentina that was a sixth generation farming and ranching family that they had about 600,000 equivalent acres in Argentina that they operated and they raised corn and wheat and cattle. They knew what they were looking at. The rest of those people that came to look at that ranch, they had no idea what they were looking at. And many times you had to have an interpreter with you because they didn't speak English. And that makes for a long day. But I would always ask them as we were driving around, why are you interested in this ranch? And every one of them said, because the United States is the best place in the world to invest money. And, you know, we think we've got problems, but I guess to, to people from other countries, we still look like a great place. Absolutely. And and I find that fascinating, I guess, uh, about the foreign interests that you talked about. And I know there's a lot of concern, if you will, about, uh, example, China, China and China, yeah. China, uh, farmland and so forth. And what the we got a call are. yesterday from a Chinese lady in New York who was wanting to buy 50,000 acres of irrigated farmland to grow hemp and and I told my salesman I said I don't know whether we want to get into that or not we might take a lot of negative publicity on that one so well I was I uh, did a, an appraisal up in um, southwestern Oklahoma here about a year or so ago and at least two of it, that guy's neighbors uh, were I think Japanese and uh, were raising yeah. marijuana on it and legally do yeah. it but uh, that oh, was yeah. That was the new uh, product and driver of the land prices, I guess, up there. Um, Sam, there's a colleague of yours that I met many years ago down at Junction, Paul Beerswell. I'm sure you know him. Oh, Paul, very well. And Paul used to say his quote was, pretty outsells production every time, end quote. And he would talk to an audience about uh, such things as running water and, uh, again, big trees and history and, and all those kind of things. Is that still pretty much uh, a, a true statement today? I think it's very accurate. Uh, and, and that goes back to the recreation market. You know, the, the quail people, the deer hunters, the people parking money, they want to park money in pretty rather than plain and, uh, or production. And, uh, and actually the studies we've done at the rural land center uh the the recreation properties have more increased value per year normally than the production properties and that goes back to the metroplex and the hill country uh those areas they have more increase in value than the south plains or the texas panhandle which is production and uh and it's because of the, the recreation market and the scenic beauty of that part of the world. I want to move back just a little bit. You mentioned that y'all you were going to be closing here, I guess, on the last part of uh, Mesa Vista Ranch, Mr. Pickens's ranch. And uh, obviously, Mr. Pickens uh, in the quail world was very highly regarded. And uh, we've had the opportunity with our quail master's class to say, take several trips uh, visits up there and see the management and so forth they do up there and and i lament the fact that i understand but i lament the fact that that's that's going to be changing hands and being broken up and so forth but you dealt with mr pickens quite a bit so do you have any favorite stories maybe that uh from him that you well, can uh you know boone was probably the smartest man I ever had the privilege to know. Uh, I remember the first time I met him, of course I knew who he was for years, but uh, uh, 
And you know, Boone had had the right-hand man, Ron Bassett, and Ron and I became very close friends over the years. And Ron was always kind of the the point man that I dealt with, unless I went to Dallas and met with Boone or met with Boone out at Mesa Vista. But in the normal uh, transaction, I dealt with Ron more than I did Boone. But I can remember Ron called me. I had 68,000 acres of the four sixes ranch for sale and uh this was back in about 2000 more or less i think so 22 years ago something like that and uh ron called me and he said boone and i would like to come look at that and uh, so they flew into the four sixes i picked them up we spent the day looking at that 68,000 acres i and i was taking them back to the four sixes airport and Boone told me, he said, all right, here's the situation. He said, I'm going to buy this 68,000 acres. And uh, as soon as we close the sale, I'm going to list it back with you. And we're going to make improvements on it. We're going to put out quail feeders. We're going to feed the roads. We're going to do everything we need to do to really uh, bring out the recreation of this property. And he said, I'm going to list it back with you. We're going to cut it up in smaller tracks. And uh, you're going to double my money. And I thought, whoo, you know, uh, that puts a pretty big, a pretty heavy load on a real estate broker. You're selling it for one price, and then you're going to double the price. Well, anyway, he knew exactly what he was talking about. He, he put out the feeders. He fed the roads. We cut that 68,000 acres up into 15 tracks and in 15 months we had every bit of it closed sold and closed and he got back two and a half times his investment and he said let's go do it again and we ended up over about the next six or eight years we did 28 ranch deals together and uh Everything made money. He used me to expand his ranch there at Mesa Vista. We started purchasing other tracks for him that, that joined. And of course, because it was Boone Pickens, he always seemed to have to pay a premium for, for those tracks because uh, he had a vision there and, the, and these were reluctant sellers. But, uh, but we had a very good run of business with Boone. He was he he was the smartest man I ever dealt with, and I really enjoyed my relationship with Boone over the years. And of course, it's pretty sad that now we're uh, closing out the final chapter and, and selling that Mesa Vista ranch. That was dear to Boone's heart, you know. You know that, Dale. Yeah, and uh, I guess my wish was that whoever wound up with it would have the same love and passion for quail that Boone did. I'm not sure that's possible. And I don't know if that'll happen, but uh, I'm not sure either. I'm not sure either. Uh, anyway, Sam, you said you were licensed in five states. So I'm assuming that's probably New Mexico, Colorado, Oklahoma, and somewhere else. And, and Kansas, Te and Texas. Kansas. Yeah, let's, Kansas. let's talk about among those states. And I guess I would start with, uh, again, what I see in the Livestock Weekly is ranch listings from Texas versus new mexico contrast those two uh do you see marketable i mean significant increases or decreases as you go across that state line from texas to new mexico in terms of rural real estate well yeah i mean the the, the market seems to change we you know we sell a, uh, quite a few ranches over in the eastern portion of new mexico and we still sell those ranches more or less to ranch people because uh, you have a lot of government lease typically intermingled with those deeded ranches. And that's a New Mexico state lease and Bureau of Land Management. And as you get into the mountain areas, you have forest permits that that blend in with your deeded tracks. And so with those government leases, it's more economical for a rancher to buy those kind of ranches. And property taxes are a lot cheaper over in New Mexico than they are in Texas. So 
those ranches are more favorable favorable for ranchers to purchase. Uh, now you get up in the northern New Mexico and some areas of northeast New Mexico and get into the mountains and you get into the mule deer and the bear and lion and elk and trout fishing and so that that's more of a recreation market again but it's not really driven by quail it's it's driven by big game in those areas i know it, there seems to be a real trend recently of texans headed to montana and purchasing ranches up there i don't know that that's been in your portfolio or not but uh, I, i'm just uh, and that's both big game upland game uh, mountains and streams and so forth i mean that It'd be very tempting if I had the money and I could uh, withstand the winters, I guess. Well, I want to bring us back to uh, to Texas, and I want to ask you some specific questions about, as an appraiser, Sam, if this ranch has such and such, is it an asset or a liability? <laughs> okay, I'll let's try. Go, let's just start off with pump jacks. You know, there's an oil field play in there. So how does well, that that you know typically that's a liability the only you know unless you get minerals with the ranch and and i sell ranches once in a while where they let the minerals go because it's a it's in some sort of a charitable foundation or something like that and they've got to liquidate the, all the assets but typically you don't get minerals if there's oil production on the ranch and the only benefit generally from the oil production for the surface owner is that they put in good road systems in, in a lot of those areas. Now, when you get into the independent operators, the roads aren't so good. But if you're dealing with a major, they usually have good caliche roads that, that provide access through the ranch. But uh, it's, it's typically it's a, it's a negative. And and if you feel comfortable saying that's gonna that'll be a ten percent hickey or what level of that I'm, I don't know if you have a feel for well, that. Well, let me phrase it this way: If I'm selling what I call a weekend type ranch, and 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 I generally classify a weekend type ranch as half million to say three million dollars. That's the kind that the local doctor or the attorney or somebody that locally will buy something that's within a two-hour drive of, of where they live, but something they can go to on the weekend. Uh, those kind of places, minerals are not as important to those kind of buyers as when you get into a $20 million, a $50 million, a $100 million range those buyers are very sophisticated and they demand some minerals. And just like with the Swenson, the Wagner, the Matadors, the four sixes, there were minerals conveyed with those ranches. And on some of those ranches, the minerals were, the royalty income was pretty substantial, but we knew going in, we just priced the property accordingly because we know the buyer's going to demand minerals on those those size transactions. All right, next uh, object and pretty controversial: wind turbines. That's uh, that's a negative to the recreation buyer. You know, unless I view a wind turbine just like minerals. That if if you've got a ranch out there in the the wind turbines are generating $500,000 a year. If you don't let any of the wind royalty go with the ranch, it's a huge negative. But if you offer to that buyer 250,000, half of that wind income, they're not as ugly as they were before. Uh, but uh, typically from a recreation buyer standpoint, they don't want to have to look at them. But if you let the if you let the wind income go with the deal, well, they can live with them generally, but they prefer another kind of ranch with with where they where they don't have to look at them. How about these big three forty five kV power lines that are popping up more and more all the time? You know, that used to be a huge negative, 
And nowadays, some of these buyers actually, if if it's got some capacity, if it's not full and has some capacity left, some of these people actually are looking for ranches with a transmission line and or a substation because that's going to be a good location for a solar farm or a wind farm and people will buy those ranches uh, for that purpose. And that was going to be the next one I asked you was about solar farms and you know that they're they're pretty recent the last three or four or five years is when they're beginning to pop up and some of them are uh, pretty massive kind of things. You know the solar farm generates huge income per acre compared to a wind farm. You know, typically, depending on topography, you can put 10 uh, wind, uh, wind towers to a section. And depending on what company you're dealing with and wind and different factors, the typical wind farm will pay 8000 to $12,000 per year per tower. So, so, you know, 10 towers on a section is going to bring in around $100,000 per section. On a solar farm, you can, out of that 640-acre section, you can put a 3,000-acre uh, solar farm on, uh, on 10 sections, and, uh, and, and that solar farm is going to generate $500 to $700 per acre per year. I mean, a 3,000-acre solar farm generates two and a half, three million dollars a year. So the solar farm is the way to go if you can get one and it's it's it doesn't it doesn't stick up in the air as much. You can't run any cattle around it. You have to fence it off, but uh, it definitely brings in a lot more income than a than a wind farm. Well, I'm, uh, again, pretty ignorant about the solar farms, and uh, I don't know if there's any potential value to, uh, say, blue quail out in the Transpecos or Permian Basin from those or not. I, 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 I got to figure there ought to be some way that you could use those as water harvesting situations and take the water that runs off those, but, but again, I'm, I'm ignorant on that. A lot of things. Well, I know they won't let you hunt around them because they don't want those the, your shock pellets breaking their their solar panels and things like that so so it's pretty well got to be fenced off and left alone to, the way i understand it one last thing sam and these are not real big maybe in your domain but as you move south they certainly are and that's high fences asset or liability you know it was really popular 10 or 15 years ago and uh uh, we're still selling some ranches with high fence, uh, like my salesmen are showing one today down south of here. That's a, you know, pretty well-known high fence ranch. Uh, but I think a lot of the people, the record keeping, all of the, you know, you've got the, the, the issues of the, uh, uh Oh, what's that disease that the elk and deer? Yeah, yeah. You know, things like that. They they found out they're a lot more trouble than they're worth. And uh, uh, and so they're not as popular as they used to be, but we're still we still sell some along. I want to shift gears here a little bit as we're kind of coming to a close in a few minutes. Uh, I want to focus on quail ranches and Per quail ranches, what are things, again, as an appraiser or as the agent that's going to list it, what are things that you like to see in place as far as habitat, management practices, how much capital equipment, and the related question is, can a ranch be too heavily capitalized to place it beyond reach? And, and I think you just sold one that was pretty close to that. Oh, yeah, the, the boom pickings, I mean, it, it was the classic study of a, over-improved ranch and uh you know actually 
those structural improvements on Boone's Ranch are probably uh, going to bring about 20 cents on the dollar. And you've been out there many times. You know, I mean, they were probably as as well done and tasteful and and as uh, high quality as any ranch you'd ever set foot on. But the maintenance, the upkeep on those improvements, it it just you can't get your money back. So so you have to be careful on your structural improvements. But Boone had the money to do what he wanted and and. And he loved that ranch, and he enjoyed it. And 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 I talked to him a lot as he got older about that. And I said, Boone, you're never going to get your money back. You have to view this that you've made money through bringing in these oil people and cutting deals and having these political events and everything that you've done. That's what you wanted to do. That's what you built this ranch for. And, and the enjoyment factor, you've got to view that as as part of the expense and the upkeep of the ranch, you, you enjoy it. And I think he understood that. Uh, but, uh, um, a lot of, a lot of these ranches today, what I view when somebody talks about selling it, you, you want to look at a place, the sculptured brush that you've done. That's a great benefit. Maybe, uh, uh, spiking some of the shinery, you know, shinery I think is great for quail, but maybe it's too thick. You want to do a little bit of uh, of that sort of thing. You want to maybe put out some feeders, maybe some quail waterings, uh, but and conservatively stock the ranch. But everything has to be focused on the on the recreation and the quail rather than the cattle. The cattle. Uh, I think you need some grazing, but that that's a secondary benefit. Back in 2002, as I recall, we held a what I call a brush sculptor field day up there, uh, headed out of um, Aspermont there in Stonewall yeah. County, and, and went south. And the first property that we visited, uh, the gentleman had cleared a lot of brush over the last five years, and his justification was that he was getting it ready to put it on the market. And he pretty quickly found out that what he had created wasn't really what the market was wanting in terms of wildlife-related potential. And, and he came up to me after that very first stop, and he kind of sidled up to me, and he said, I wish I'd met you about 10 years ago. <laughs> he overdid it, didn't he? Because <laughs> that brush that seems to grow back overnight with your cowboy hat on, if you got your camouflage cap on, it takes a lot longer. So measure yeah, sure. twice, saw once is the is – the, Carpenter's axiom there. Um, Sam, if, if a seller contacts you to list some property, let's say two years ahead of listing it, what are some recommendations that you tell them that the market tells you to either do or not do? You referenced some of them as far as cutting back your stocking rate, probably kind of thing. Are there other things you might list? Well, you know, some of these ranches, uh, I always tell people that I've had the pleasure over the years of selling some real pr pristine ranches, uh, like four sixes, boom pickings, things like that, that were really well maintained over the years. But the truth is the typical ranch I sell is a ranch that the family gets together and the fences are run down, the waterings are shot, the brush is encroached on the ranch to the point that it's, it's terrible and the improvements are running down and they say they have a family meeting and they say, well, we need, we can either spend $500,000 trying to clean this junky place up and keep operating or we can call Sam and sell it. And that's a lot of the ranches I sell. I hate to say a lot of the ranches I sell are pretty well used up when I sell them. And, uh, and of course, the people still want a premium price, but uh, you know they they haven't maintained the fences, they haven't maintained the waterings, they haven't worked on the brush. But you know, people that are making a living out of a ranch running cattle and maybe leasing the hunting out, it doesn't generate enough money to them where they can support their family, and then 
maintain the ranch in a pristine condition. If you don't have outside income, the ranch won't generate enough money. And so that's the problem today. But uh, if somebody is talking to me about selling the ranch and uh, I tell them, you know, conservatively stock it and and get those deer feeders out, get the quail feeders out, get some game cameras out by the feeders so we can show pictures of the game and uh, conservatively stock the place and and get all your waterings operating. The worst thing that happens to me is you go out on the ranch and half your drinking troughs are dry or cracked or running over. And I mean, clean things up, clean up around the headquarters and, and make it make it presentable. Uh, and that's that's the main thing in my in my book. OK, um, again, if I'm looking for a quail ranch, is now a buyer's or a seller's market. Has demand kept up with supply or are both limited? You know, right now, honestly, Dale, the the concern that I've got, and we're actually getting some ranches back on the market that we sold people five years ago that they say this quail deal is just, it's not, there's not enough quail, there's not a huntable population out there because of these droughts that we've had and other factors but uh it it's a it's a seller's market there's people wanting good quail ranches and like you bring up south texas historically if you if money and distance is not an issue south texas has been the the hottest spot year in and year out but now then with this situation on the border i'm seeing a lot of people right now that do not want to go to South Texas because of the border situation. So that's forcing them to look up here in this part of the of the country as an alternative. But you know, and I know our quail populations really suffered the last few years. That's um, especially demoralizing to people like me because again, uh -huh. we, we think we know what we're doing and we try to do it, but we don't see we don't see the quail return that we're expecting. Well, it's hard. It's hard to to beat Mother Nature. If Mother Nature doesn't cooperate, no matter what you do, it's 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 just not enough. I've always said that drought cocks the hammer and rain pulls the trigger, and we saw that in <laughs> fourteen through sixteen. But uh, right. the hammers are both cocked, and we're just waiting for an El Nino weather pattern, and hopefully we'll. Be, still be touting that uh, our quail populations are looking good. Um, Sam, is there anything else as we talk about winding this thing down that we might have forgotten to talk about you want to bring up? I, I don't guess. I just, we, we need a good general rain. And we, we uh, I think I think that's the biggest issue we're facing. I don't care what it is. In 2011, I became an expert at selling drought out ranches, and that's not fun. So uh, uh, a lot of these buyers, you know, they say, well, I don't want to go look at a ranch under pristine conditions. Well, I know this, it's a lot easier to sell them with green grass on them than it is when you're in a drought. I know that. Pretty outsells production every time. Yep. That, that's right. Well, Sam, we appreciate you taking time uh, to visit with us about this. Uh, again, it is a major force uh, affecting quail and quail habitat. And uh, again, my hope is that we can keep big properties big. And I know that's going against the tide, but uh, the, the less we can keep them from getting cut up, typically the better we are. So I appreciate your friendship. And Thank your, you, Bill. Your friendship. I'll help. Thank okay. you. And you uh, I will uh, be in touch with you as we move on down the road and good luck to you in the future. Thank you, sir really interesting information presented today and so I, i'm not sure that my 10 million dollars that i won in the lotto is going to get me that ranch so i may have to throw in with you and uh, see if we can come up with enough to get that piece of heaven that we all want to have uh, signing off from san angelo and i hope you have a good start to your quail season 
Thank you so much, Dr. Dale, and thank you, Sam Middleton, for your excellent insights and information. A family with over 100 years of ranch real estate experience is indeed special. We hope you've enjoyed this month's conversation. For more information about the Dr. Dale on Quail podcast and past episodes, go to the website of the Rolling Plains Quail Research Foundation at quailresearch.org. There you can also learn more about the foundation's research ranch, research projects, parasite work, and resources. I'm Gary Joyner of the Texas Farm Bureau. Thank you for joining us. Until next time. Support from Gordian Sons Outfitters makes Dr. Dale on Quail possible. Gordian Sons, the finest hunting and fly fishing shop to be found. Find out more at GordianSons.com.